It's now my great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Douglas Massey. He's the Henry G. Bryant Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. He is one of the leading authorities on immigration and segregation in the United States, and he's the author of several quite important books, Beyond Smoke and Mirrors, Mexican Immigration in an Age of Economic Integration, Brokered Boundaries, Creating Immigrant Identity in an anti-immigrant times, and most recently, Climbing Mount Laurel, the struggle for affordable housing and social mobility in an American suburb. Since 1982, he's also served as the co-director with Jorge Durand of the University of Guadalajara of the Mexican Migration Project that was created to further our understanding of the complex process of Mexican migration to the United States. The seminar he will lead is entitled, America's Immigration Policy in Crisis. Please join me in welcoming Douglas Massey. Um, thank you, it's a great pleasure to be here. It's a lot warmer than it is in New Jersey. Um, there is not now, and there never has been, a crisis at the Mexico-US border. Uh, when crises uh, pop out every generation or so, or sometimes more frequently, they're not really about immigration. They're about what's going on domestically within the United States. And politicians, political entrepreneurs, bureaucrats, pundits, use Mexican immigrants and immigration to address uh, domestic concerns, uh, usually in a way that demonizes the, the immigrants for ulterior purposes within the United States. So Mexican migration really didn't begin uh, until long after the border was established in 1853. Uh, in fact, the border wasn't even defended until 1924 when the Border Patrol was founded. And when the Border Patrol was founded, it was founded not to uh, keep uh, Mexicans from coming in, it was founded to keep Europeans from coming in around the quotas uh, that we set up in the early 1920s to keep out Southern and Eastern Europeans, basically Italian Catholics and Russian Jews. Uh, and Congress is afraid they're gonna sneak in through Tijuana or through Matamoros, Mexico. Uh, in fact, uh, during the 1920s, uh, it was a, a very uh, a period of very high migration between Mexico and the United States. Mexican migration really begins in 1907 when uh, the U.S. reaches its gentleman's agreement with Japan. If you're not familiar with the gentleman's agreement, it was an agreement between the U.S. government under Theodore Roosevelt and the Japanese government uh, by which uh, Japan would agree not to let their people come to the United States if we would agree not to ban them from doing so. Uh, Japan was a rising industrial power and didn't want to have the shame and ignominious fortune of China and being banned from entry into a Western country. So they voluntarily restricted their own immigration. That immediately created labor shortages in California, all up the West, the Southwest, and the solution was Mexican immigrants. And they began by being privately recruited, uh, following the rail lines down to Mexico and beginning to recruit. Uh, and then once the US, uh, once the uh, uh, World War I broke out in 1914, European immigration stopped, creating further labor shortages, and immigration from Mexico spiked. 
And then once the U.S. Uh, joined the war effort in 1917, the government set up a, a, a recruitment program, a guest worker program. And then after the war in the 1920s, when Congress passed the Quota Acts to keep out Southern and Eastern Europeans, uh, and immigration fell, uh, Mexicans were in demand all over the United States. And their population in the United States grew uh, quite rapidly from a relatively small uh, level of around 100,000 uh, in, uh, in uh, 1900 to about uh, 750,000 uh, at its peak in 1929 or 1930. Then, of course, the Depression hit. And, of course, the Mexicans were no longer welcome because they were going on welfare and taking jobs uh, that should belong to real Americans. And so there was a mass deportation campaign from 1929 to 1935. They uh, deported about 450,000 people, basically cut the Mexican population in half uh, in, in a, a space of a few years. And that stopped Mexican immigration to the United States uh, pretty much dead for the entire decade of the 1930s and into the 1940s. And then uh, World War II comes about. And there's a mass mobilization in the United States after Pearl Harbor and uh, a mass draft and a mass uh, movement of, of almost all available workers who weren't in the military into factories. And uh, the United States decided, well, we wanted those Mexican workers back. And so the government approached Mexican government and said, gee, we're real sorry about that deportation campaign last decade, but uh, we could really use your help now. And they set up something called the Bracero Program. It's a binational agreement between Mexico and the United States for the temporary importation of Mexican workers with short-term visas for labor, mainly in agricultural and food processing, largely in California and other uh, southwestern states. Initially, Texas was excluded because Mexicans were so discriminated against in Texas that the government didn't want to expose their citizens to those conditions. But uh, ultimately, they did start going to Texas as well. That program, which was initially in, uh, envisioned as a temporary wartime measure, uh, uh, grew during the war. And then after the war, Congress uh, wanted to get rid of it because they didn't want Mexicans coming in. But uh, after the war, uh, uh, all those uh, uh, Okies that you saw coming into California to harvest the crops in the 1930s, and, as in the Grapes of Wrath, uh, they were now working in unionized jobs in, in, uh, in, in factories in California uh, in, in, in working in the new military-industrial complex, and they didn't want to go back to the farm fields. And it created huge labor shortages, and no Americans would go into these jobs. And so uh, there, as the Bracero program was winding down, uh, employers started telling their braceros, well, um, you're not going to be able to come back as, with a bracero permit, but when you go back this year, tell all your brothers and sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, that if they come back with you next year, they will find a job waiting for them. And that was the far start of the first real phase of illegal migration to the United States. And illegal migration was growing, and that was causing more and more political problems, because by, if they're illegal migrants, they're by definition criminals and lawbreakers and therefore a threat. Uh, and that comes to a head in 1953. It's the end of the Korean War. There's a brief recession. It's also the, uh, getting towards the height of the McCarthy period, where everybody's afraid of communist infiltration. And uh, the Mexico-U.S. border became framed as the soft underbelly by which the communists would infiltrate into the United States. And Mexicans were seen as unwanted people because of high unemployment in the U.S. And uh, 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 for the first time in 20 years, the Republican administration took over under uh, Dwight Eisenhower, 
and he appointed a former Marine Corps commandant to be head of the Immigration Naturalization Service and to address the political turmoil, they launched Operation Wetback from 1953 to 1954, which for the first time apprehended more than one million people along the Mexico-US border. And if you listen to some of the hardline people today, they say, what we need is another Operation Wetback because that was so successful, it stopped illegal migration. And if you look at the data, uh, apprehensions for people crossing the border precipitously fell, but actually, they precipitously fell not because of the apprehensions, not because of the uh, crackdown at the border, but because Congress quietly, at the same time, without much fanfare, doubled the size of the Bracero program. And in the late 1950s, there were 450,000 Braceros migrating into the United States on an annual basis. And prior to, and at this time, under US immigration law, there were no numerical limits on immigration from any country in the Western Hemisphere and about 50,000 uh, legal permanent residents were coming into the United States every year from Mexico. So in the late 50s, you have a migration system uh, that gets pretty well established where you've got a half a million Mexicans coming into the US every year. Most of them are circulating back and forth. The vast majority are circulating back and forth. Even people with green cards were moving back and forth and just using the green card as uh, a permanent guest worker permit, basically. And there was very little settlement going on. And that persists, the Bracero program exists up through the end of 1964. Uh, and then Congress uh, decides to uh, terminate the Bracero program. Uh, it's the middle of the civil rights movement and it comes to be seen as an exploitive labor program, which of course it was. Uh, uh, and they also um, sought to deracialize the US immigration system by eliminating, eliminating the restrictive quotas and the outright bans against certain ethnic groups. And so they created a new system that gave every country in the world 20,000 visas, and they allocated those visas according to labor market needs and family unification criteria. <clears throat> and uh, they set a worldwide cap of 290,000 visas, and then they set hemispheric caps of 170,000 in the Eastern Hemisphere and 120,000 in the Western Hemisphere. And that's the first time in, America, in history that there's a numerical limit on Western Hemispheric in, in, uh, immigration. And then uh, over the course of the years, they further ratcheted it down. In 1976, they put the Western Hemisphere under the global uh, cap. There was no, no, no longer any separate hemispheric quotas. And the entire world is under a new system with a cap of 290,000 visas, only 20,000 visas per country per year with US immediate relatives of US citizens exempted. So um, basically from the late 50s, um, to the late 70s, you go from a situation where Mexico has access to about 500,000 legal entry visas, mostly temporary, but 50,000 permanent residents, to a new situation where there's no guest worker program at all, and uh, the uh, number of visas is capped at 20,000, with very few American citizens able to support relatives coming in. So um, what happens? Well conditions of labor supply and demand hadn't really changed on either side of the border. And over the 22 years of the Bracero program, millions of Mexicans, about 4.5 million Mexicans had entered the United States and established contact and, con and connections with US employers and learned about jobs in the United States. And so when all of a sudden after 65, the opportunities for legal entry are curtailed, uh, uh, the obvious thing happened. 
the, the flows simply quickly reestablished themselves under undocumented auspices, and that was the beginning of the second wave of illegal migration. And from 1965 to around 1977, there's a steady increase in apprehensions at the border, corresponding to a steady increase in the volume of undocumented migration. Then, around 1977, the increase in the volume of undocumented migration just stops. And it's about the same level as you observed in the late 1950s, 450 to 500,000 people coming in. And uh, most of them, vast majority, still going home. They're just now circulating without legal status. Uh, and in, in practical terms, nothing had really changed. The same migrants are going to the same employers in the same states, doing the same sorts of jobs. Uh, uh, but now everything had changed because they were illegal. And as illegal migrants, they were easily framed as threats, criminals, lawbreakers. And this starts the beginnings of, of what's called a Latino threat narrative in the US media. And more and more references in the US media to uh, immigration from south of the border as a crisis, as a, as a threat. Uh, and, the, and using metaphors to frame this threat. Uh, the two favorite metaphors are um, marine metaphors and martial metaphors. So marine metaphors, it's a, it's a tidal wave that's going to flood the United States and drown its culture and inundate its society. But over time, being the warlike people that we are, uh, martial mer uh, metaphors took over and it became an alien invasion in which outgunned border patrol officers were desperately trying to hold the line against uh, bonsai charges of desperate migrants seeking to gain access to the United States. And, um, and this, this uh, threat metaphor gets more and more currency in the American media, more and more references in TV, magazines, newspapers. And this actually pushes uh, uh, American public sentiment in a more conservative direction and make, creates demands uh, for uh, more and more border enforcement and more and more restrictive immigration legislation, which uh, is really kicked off in 1986 with the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which gave legal status to former undocumented migrants, about two million or so, um, but at the same time began a, an escalation of border enforcement that was totally disconnected from the underlying volume. So between 1965 and 1985, a lot of people migrated to the United States, but 85% of undocumented entries were offset by departures, and the net increase was very small. Starting in 1986, we start militarizing the border, and then it starts accelerating as time goes on. In 1993, with the launching of Operation Blockade in El Paso, 1994, Operation Gatekeeper in San Diego, full-scale militarization of these two sectors of the border, which accounted for about 75 to 80% of undocumented entries. <coughs> And then in 1996, uh, the, uh, the immigration, uh, immigration, what is it, the Immigration Enforcement Act and Responsibility Act, or something like that, IIRA, it's called, uh, and the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act really cracked down on immigration even further and upped border enforcement. Uh, and then, of course, uh, 2001, the, the September 11th uh, events occur and uh, the USA Patriot Act passes and ramps up uh, border enforcement to exponentially, to uh, unheard of levels. And really um, remember that the actual volume of undocumented immigration from Mexico really stopped rising about 1977. 
So all this escalation of border enforcement is occurring when there actually is no underlying increase in undocumented migration. So, um, but this, this huge militarization of the Mexico-U.S. border, turning the Border Patrol into the largest arms-bearing branch of the, of the U.S. government with the exception of the military itself, with a budget of about $3.8, $3.9 billion per year and current officer uh, number of agents of around 20,000 a year, 20,000 people. Uh, this had big consequences, but not the ones that people expected. The, the, the strategy, the thinking was this would drive up the cost so high and make the risks so great that people would not come anymore. But that's not what happened. Um, it did drive up the costs. Border crossing costs went from about, um, in 2016 dollars, from about $800 a crossing to currently about $6,000 a crossing. Uh, and and uh, it also increased the risks and the death rate along the border increased dramatically. And some, since 1986, uh, about 6,300 people we know of have died while attempting a border crossing. And the death rate has gotten extremely high. What happened was and that the militarization of El Paso and San Diego had the effect of stopping migration in those sectors, but simply diverting the flows away from urbanized areas in El Paso and San Diego through the Sonoran Desert into Arizona, which hadn't received illegal mig any migrant from Mexico since the 1920s suddenly became the prime sort place of border crossing. And this drove forward the Latino threat narrative because 20,000 Mexicans arriving every week in Tijuana crossing into San Diego don't make a big impression on people. I mean, Tijuana is like 1.6 million, all Mexicans. And uh, San Diego is like three or four million people, about 40% Mexicans. And so Mexicans aren't, don't stand out. But 20,000 people crossing in Douglas, Arizona, which is a population of 25,000, and going over open ranch land creates a new visual. And all the press comes down there, and it was a new invasion. But nothing had changed except the locus of border crossing. But it drove forward this narrative, a terrible threat were being invaded, and gave all this imagery of desperate people. And they were desperate because they had been forced out into the desert, or the reaches, lower reaches of the Rio Grande Valley, which is quite wild. <clears throat> so. Um, we did increase the costs and risks of border crossing, which was part of their strategy. It was actually explicitly articulated in the document that set up the strategy. Uh, but this didn't stop people from coming. Uh, because the jobs were still there, and with all that money being spent on border enforcement, it never really increased the likelihood of apprehension. Because when they set up all the uh, militarization in, in San Diego, of course, the first year they did that, everybody runs into it and there's a big spike in apprehensions. Next year, they're not so dumb. They don't go there, they go around. And they're going through places where it's more dangerous, but there are also many fewer Border Patrol officers. So the problem of apprehension actually goes down for a time. And then it's like a whack-a-mole game, so you block up this hole, then they switch somewhere else, you block up that hole, and they switch somewhere else, and it's always been that way. And so um, migrants really encountered a new set of circumstances at the border. They knew that, okay, it's gonna cost me a lot more, and it's gonna be really risky and quite dangerous, but the chances of me getting killed are still not very high, 
And when I get across, there's a job. And I can pay back this inflated cost uh, uh, and, and make, get on making money. However, uh, they don't want to do that again. So rather than going back to face the gauntlet at the border again next year, they stay. And they have to stay longer because they have a bigger uh, upfront cost to pay off. If, you, if it costs $800 one, in one, at one time, and then $2,400 another time, you've got to stay three times longer to pay off the bill if, it's, if, it's an $800, if you're making $800 a month. So, um, so there's the male migrant workers start staying much, much longer. And over time, there's a process of family reunification. As the males stay longer, the wives join them, bring with them their younger kids, who are today's dreamers. And then us, the ones who are single start forming relationships with people north of the border. And the, uh, so we, we, we don't observe any decline in the likelihood of taking an undocumented trip to the United States. But we observe, after 1986, an accelerating and strong decline in the number of people coming back from trips in the United States, especially from the first trip to the United States. And so uh, by this time, we're spending upwards of $3 billion a year. And the net effect of that $3 billion is to um, dramatically accelerate the rate of undocumented population growth in the United States and, and increase the volume of migration into the country. It's a very simple equation in demography. Net migration equals in-migration minus out-migration. If you have a massive policy intervention that has a huge effect on out-migration but no effect on in-migration, net migration increases. So the rate of undocumented population growth in the 1990s grows by 82% of over what it had been before. And the, and the undocumented population, which had been growing very slowly, growing from about zero in 65 to around three million in 1985. And then after the IRCA legalizations in 1988, it started again at around two million. But then it jumped from 88 to 2008 to around 12 million. And that's because of our own intervention at the border, which didn't stop people from coming in, it kept them from going back. So the reason we have a large undocumented population today is because of our own border policy during the 1980s and 1990s. And, um, and uh, then, uh, starting around 2001, 2000, uh, actually migration from Mexico began to fall. And the probability of leaving on an undocumented trip began to drop. And then when 2000, the 2007, 2008 recession hit, fell off a cliff, and, uh, and it never has come back. So now, since 2008, net migration from Mexico to the United States has been negative. And the size of the undocumented Mexican population is dropping. More people are going back, in good measure because of the deportations that are going on. Very few people are coming in. So naturally, if net migration from illegal migration from Mexico has been negative for a decade, it's the perfect time to spend $25 billion on a border wall. So what's happening at the border today? Well, there's no Mexicans. I mean, what Mexican migration was was a labor migration that we, through our border policy, converted into a family migration and transformed what had been a seasonal flow of male workers going to three states into a settled population of families living in 50 states by diverting the flows away from California, 
with the militarization of the San Diego sector. So if you look at census data between 85 and 90, about one third of all, about two thirds of all Mexicans entering during that period came to California. Fast forward 95 to 2000, one third. 2005, 2010, one third. It never came back and the fastest growing Mexican populations are no longer in California. They're in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Iowa, places like that, and, and New York and New Jersey. And, uh, uh, but uh, it, it, it shifted from being a, a, a circulating uh, movement of male workers into a settled population of families. And uh, of course, once the family reunification process occurs, you start having US-born citizen kids and you end up with a mixed status population and ever rising fraction of the people uh, uh, who are undocumented are living in households with US-born kids. The majority of them now have US-born kids. So when you beat on the parents, you beat on American citizen kids who are our future. Uh, and uh, what's happening at the border now is Mexicans are gone, the labor flows are gone, and they've been replaced by a flow that was always there, but just got lost in the decimal place. Um, uh, uh, before 2000. In 2000, there were 1.6 million apprehensions at the border. 98.6 uh, were Mexicans. A very small number, a couple hundred thousand, were Central Americans. Well, now the Mexicans are gone. And the only people left are Central Americans. And we're still getting the same, you know, 150 to 200,000 Central Americans. But now they're not workers. Now they're families and children. And the reason they're coming is because we messed up their country in the 1980s. The intervention, the US intervention to topple the Contras, to topple the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua, the Contra War that unfolded under President Reagan from 1981 to around 1987 or 1988 and really sporadically continuing into the 1990s, destroyed the economies of the frontline states of Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. If you look at GDP per capita, it falls in absolute terms. And you don't get back to the GDP that existed in 1979 before the Sandinistas came to power until 2011. So it's just a lost more than a decade, uh, two decades. And then it's still hugely far behind where it would have been if we hadn't done that intervention and wrecked the economies. And of course, it unleashed a huge wave of violence across these countries, displacing hundreds of thousands of people. And if you are from Nicaragua, you were lucky because you were fleeing the tyranny of a leftist regime, the Sandinistas, and you were given a red carpet to legal status in the United States under the Nicara Act, Nicaraguan Adjustment and Central American Relief Act, which pretty much gave carte blanche access to green cards to Nicaraguans but excluded Hondurans, Salvadorans, and Guatemalans who had the misfortune of coming from right-wing governments that we were propping up and supporting in the war against the, the Sandinistas. So they entered without status, you know, an undocumented status. And then they stayed here. And then after the, the, the peace, after the war ends, um, they don't just go back because now they have lives here. They've had US-born kids, they've got jobs, they've got lives. And um, those are the people that are here now. And when the war ends, the outflow really declines, but it doesn't go back to the status quo ante, which was zero. There was very, very few migrants coming into the United States from Central America prior to 1980. 
The US intervenes, drives a bunch of people out, wrecks the economy, and then after the war ends, the economy's still wrecked. And now all these people facing a wrecked economy and violence that never really goes away because of gang warfare and, all, and things that replaced the civil, civil war, uh, now all these people trying to escape the terrible conditions have relatives in the US. And so that's the genesis of the origins of people that are arriving at the border now. People escaping conditions that follow directly from our own intervention in the region. And what we have at the border now is not an immigration crisis, it's a humanitarian crisis. And it's not that big. It's really small by most standards, certainly by the standards of what happened in Europe. Uh, we, had, we can deal with this if we treated it as a humanitarian problem and a refugee problem that we have a moral responsibility to, to help solve. When the boat people started coming out of Southeast Asia after our misadventures in Vietnam, hundreds of thousands of people were brought into the United States. They were processed as refugees. They were settled. Uh, in a short time, the vast majority have integrated into the United States. The second and third generation, with a few exceptions, are doing, are doing quite well, following the footsteps of other immigrants to the U.S. It was a success. And we could do the same thing with the, my, the refugees who are now showing up on our southern border from Central America. And there are many fewer of them than there are people, there were people in South Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, at the time of the boat, migrant, the boat people. Uh, Central America is very small. Uh, Salvador is about six million people. Honduras is uh, nine million people. Guatemala is 13 to 14 million people. Mexico is 130 million people. And it took 50 years of continuous large-scale Mexican migration for 10% of Mexico to end up in the United States, which is what's there now. So these are small outflows, and if we simply process them and allow family unification with people in the United States, it would be relatively easy to solve the problem, and you wouldn't see these terrible sights of mothers being torn away from their children and children being deported without guardians, without accompaniment to a, a country, without their parents, no, with no, nobody at the, sending, the receiving place being informed that they're arriving, kids being put in uh, camps and in you know, isolated places, parents being separated. Uh, uh, it's all very distressing for me. And of course, um, we are doing record deportations at this point in American history. Uh, deportations are, we deported 450,000 people between 1929 and 1935, and when I first read that in the history books when I was a younger student, I thought, oh, that was terrible. Good thing that won't happen again, uh, because we wouldn't do that now. But uh, now we're deporting at the height, now we are deporting around 370,000 people per year. We've institutionalized deportations so that that happens on an annual basis. And two-thirds of the immigration detention system is privately owned by GeoCorp and by Corrections Corporation of America, now more, it's got a kinder and gentler name of Core Civic, uh, but it's still a Corrections Corporation, still CC, same initials. Uh, and uh, so about two-thirds of the, of the beds in the de detention system are managed by private uh, enterprises. And their uh, uh, lobbyists implored Congress to set a quota. ICE is required to fill 34,000 beds in this private detention system every day. They pay for it anyway, whether they catch people or not. So now ICE goes out, has to go out 
and catch 34,000 people every day to, to keep profits up for Corrections Corporation and GeoCorp, irrespective of whatever the conditions are, irrespective of what the driving forces of the migration are, irrespective of anything. And now we are in um, the most nativist um, reaction uh, that we've seen in the United States clearly since the 1920s. And perhaps uh, maybe all in all of US history it remains to be seen. Uh, Mexicans are demonized. President of the United States announced his campaign for the presidency by declaring them to be criminals, rapists, uh, and demanded a border wall. Continues to demand that border wall. I watched TV this morning, and he was now talking about the caravans of Central American criminals coming to the United States to swarm across the border and prey on Americans. When in fact, there are women and children escaping conditions that we caused through our own intervention. And he's doing that. He doesn't really care about immigration. It's not an immigration policy. It's to mobilize politically his base in the United States. It's got nothing to do with who these people are, where they're coming from, why they're coming here. And he doesn't really care about the facts. He says they're criminals, but it's well established that immigrants are, have lower crime rates than natives. And the longer that people stay in the United States, the more crime prone they get. Uh, it's an American thing. And immigrants actually lower the crime rates. So if you keep immigrants out, you're going to actually raise the average crime rate. Uh, but uh, this math, that much math is way beyond our president. Um, so um, what we've got now is a nativist reaction going on. Um, it's very powerful. The only thing that will stop it is electoral losses for the Republican Party. Uh, 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 otherwise, they're going to continue to support it. Uh, and that, that's the situation we're in. Now, if we want to really want to deal with the situation and solve it, there are basically two things we need to do. First, you need to legalize the 11 million people who are here. Um, since illegal migration stopped more than a decade ago, the population that's here has been aging in place. And two-thirds of them have been here 10 years or young, young, longer, and the majority have been here 15 years or longer. Majority now have US-born citizen kids. As I said, when we deport the parents, we really hurt the kids. Uh, and uh, according to the US consulates and embassy in Mexico, there are about 700,000 American-born citizen kids in Mexico with their deported parents where they are undocumented in Mexico. If they, they have been deported at an older age, they don't speak Spanish very well. They don't know much about Mexican history. They don't know popular Mexican culture. They might have thought they were Mexicans when they were in the US, but they were really Americans. And then they get down to Mexico and they get bullied and ostracized by the Mexican kids who you know, don't think they're Mexicans. What are you doing here? You're not, a, you're not Mexican. And the Mexican school system is trying to integrate these people, but it's a real struggle. And of course, these are American citizens who will be coming back someday because they're American citizens. Only they'll come back with less education, having been traumatized, and probably be fairly angry people when they come back. And that's our future workers. And their children, they're minors. And then, of course, there are um, the deported uh, uh, dreamers themselves, people who came here as children and deported back. They speak colloquial American English, and they have created a boom in uh, these, the um, 
call uh, center industry because you can put, set up a call center in Monterey or outside of Guadalajara, hire people that talk like Americans to talk to Americans and you don't have to, they, they think they're talking to an American and they are talking to an American, it's just they, they don't, can't qualify technically for being American but they, they talk like Americans, they act like Americans, they grew up in America and that's the situation. So the first thing to do, we need to solve the problem, is to legalize the 11 million people. For the people who uh, have registered as dreamers, which are about 830,000 people, probably more would qualify if they weren't afraid. Um, the 830,000 dreamers are more secure as citizens than we are because they've already gone, undergone a complete and full security clearance with, the I, with, with Homeland Security that says they're no threat to the US society. And so for those people, I would immediate and uh, amnesty and put, give them at least a permanent resident status on a fast track to citizenship. Uh, what, in what moral code is it all right to punish children for decisions taken by their parents? But that's what we are systematically doing and have done for the past decade. And lest you think that I'm too hard on Republicans, it's been bipartisan. It was Obama that accelerated deportations to the record levels, uh, higher than Bush's. Uh, and uh, it was Obama on his first year in office that continued to accelerate border enforcement when his own Homeland Security was telling him that the undocumented population was falling. Uh, so we need to legalize, uh, give an amnesty to the people who entered as children, basically. And for people who came in as adults, um, a pathway to legal status. You know, they've been framed as criminals and lawbreakers. I think politically, you have to somehow say, okay, they, they broke the law, they need to make some kind of atonement. So you give them a pathway, so if they learn English, they pay their taxes for years, they, do some, they get an immediate temporary status, legal status, laws and live and work without fear, and then a pathway to legal status. And then if you really want to punish them, fine them $2,000 at the end of their period so that they pay their debt to society and can move on. If you can get the, these people legalized, then the refugee problem becomes much easier because now there's a, there are legal ways to reunite them with family members in the United States. And the family members are in much better position to support the refugees coming in because they can work above the board, they can acquire labor mobility, they can get higher wages. Uh, the, one of the biggest drags on wages uh, in the immigrant population is the fact that large shares are undocumented. Uh, and uh, if you legalize them, wages are gonna rise. And if the baby boom had half a brain, they'd want to legalize all these undocumented people so their wages would rise, they'd make more money, they could put more money into the social security system to fund their retirement, which is totally underfunded, uh, and they would buy their houses that they're gonna move out of because they're old. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, what we have today is not a rational debate. It's not based on any kind of logic or facts or information. It's, uh, it's a deliberate use of racial and ethnic enmity to mobilize a base uh, on explicitly nationalist, nativist, xenophobic terms uh, uh, that is uh, happening yet again in the United States. And until that's over, we won't be able to solve uh, our problems and we won't be able to um, be the kind of democratic society, democratic republic that we were founded to be.
Thank you. I'd like to know, and I know that you are active in uh, Mexico, what is Mexico uh, doing uh, to address the things that are happening? Well, they're doing what they can on their side of the border to facilitate the reintegration of, of their citizens who've been deported back to a country that they haven't lived in many times for many, many years. And the biggest challenge, as I said, is integrating their US-born citizen kids back into, into a country where they're not citizens, they're undocumented, and they don't have the credentials to technically to receive social services in Mexico. And they're trying to get them credentialed in some way, go, working through the bureaucratic processes. And uh, the Secretary of Education is, is, is trying to use um, some of the deported um, uh, dreamer-type kids uh, uh, to help integrate the U.S. citizen kids into the Mexican school system because they speak Spanish better. And um, some of them spent part of their lives, at least, in, in Mexico. But it's a real tall order. Uh, uh, they, they, and the Mexican consulates are doing their best to try to protect the student, uh, the, the migrants here. The, you know, they have this um, matricula consular, uh, they, they have an identity document that a lot of localities will accept as, as identification for yes. official purposes. Yes. So they, they're trying to give them a document. I know that's true in California. Oh, well, I'll just talk louder. I know that's true in California. Is that true in other states? It's, in, it's true in all the states. Is it's, it? It's, uh -huh. all the, it's, it's a policy of the Mexican foreign ministry, and it goes through all the consulates. Uh, and um, uh, I, I personally know a number of the consuls uh, in, in Los Angeles and New York, uh, and they're doing what, what they can to protect their citizens, and even going out of their way to protect American citizens who are of Mexican origin. Their parents are probably undocumented. Uh, uh, but there's very little that they can do, especially now with, uh, um, under the Trump administration and given the Republicans in the, the kind of the Tea Party group in, in the House. Uh, so uh, it's a tall order for, for Mexico. And, 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 and <laughs> they kind of look to the north and think, what the hell is going on up there? Uh, you know, they want to build a wall when there's a negative flow back to Mexico. Uh, they want to get rid of NAFTA, and they make a secret deal, and they claim they've revised NAFTA, but when you look at it, they didn't do anything to NAFTA. It's just all show. And, and they make all kinds of false statements, and we're not, Americans, they, they think America's living in some kind of dream world, that somebody spiked the water inside, the water supply inside the beltway with LSD or something, and, and they're just fantasizing. So they're, they're, they're fairly baffled. And um, the big question is what's going to happen when the new president takes over, AMLO? Uh, uh, and uh, nobody really knows. Uh, but it's, it'll be interesting to find out. And a lot will depend on what happens in several weeks in the elections. Yeah, so I had a question. And it was, I'm not sure if it's a question or statement that uh, you have this tragedy now institutionalized into the profit-making operations of corporate America and it was a business that was actually declining because of 
fewer enforcements on minor infractions and things of that sort. So now they've been able to pull up the slack with uh, immigrant occupation. So how are you going to reverse that? Once that becomes institutionalized, I, I see that even harder. They're making money off this tragedy. Um, it's worse than that um, because uh, it's not only private corporations, which uh, the major shareholders of these corporations are the Carlyle Group, which are a found, it's a, it's a capital group that's organized by a bunch of former Bush administration officials. So uh, it's like, it's, they make their money through con government contracts and then they pressure the government to get the contracts that will make them more money. It's kind of incestuous. Um, but it's worse than the private sector because um, uh, now the Border Patrol unions and the ICE unions are very uh, uh, supportive of ever-increasing enforcement. And when Obama tried to scale back, they sued him in federal court for not enforcing the law. Uh, so it, it's, you've, you, now you've got um, a public workers union, uh, and Republicans hate unions, but they like these two unions just fine. And they're not going to try to de-unionize the Border Patrol or de-unionize ICE like de they de-unionized um, the public workers in, in Wisconsin. Uh, and so it's, it's, it really creates a huge political problem because there's a lot of vested, more and more vested interests in it, even though it's doing a lot of damage to the United States, um, uh, both in practical terms and in moral terms, and certainly in our standing worldwide. Uh, so you have to come up with something for all these employed people to do, uh, to earn money so that their livelihoods aren't threatened. Uh, uh, maybe you could take that $25 billion you're gonna spend on a wall and devote it to uh, turning these into, they could, they could actually do something useful for the war on terror. Uh, I mean, Saudis and Kuwaitis drove the planes into the towers on 9-11 and to show Al-Qaeda how tough we are, uh, we deport our Latinos. Uh, and you know, it just, there's, the border has become this all-encompassing symbol. If you want to show the American people that you're going to be tough and protected from threats, the simple answer for everything, one size fits all, more border enforcement. So you may have noticed that uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas was saying, we know there are people, that we know that Al-Qaeda is setting up camps in Mexico to teach people to learn how to act Hispanic and then they're going to come across the border and attack America. So, like, this guy's got to be something in his water. Uh, can you imagine a fundamentalist Islam, Islamists coming into Tijuana and blending in, uh, uh, sh shooting tequila, smoking some dope? Uh, uh, and uh, how do you teach somebody who's an uh, Arabic speaker to act Hispanic? If they're a fundamentalist Islamist, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. And then when now, and then it was ISIS. Same thing was said about ISIS. And then the kicker was, when the Ebola outbreak broke out, politicians in the campaign at the time. Um, this was 2012, I think, was 14. Cl demanded closure of the Mexico-U.S. border to keep Ebola out, since there are so many West Africans in in, in uh, Mexico, and there are so many flights between West Africa and Mexico. That's obviously the place you're going to put all your enforcement resources. 
uh, would you put money into the border on Canada where there are Islamic populations and where there are known terrorist cells that have infiltrated the United States? And where there are lots of African populations and flights into Canada? No, you put it on Mexico's border. So it's really, it's the, a lot of special interests. Big chunk of America is convinced that border enforcement is the, is the, is the solution to all of our threats. And there's unions involved. So it's, it's really a tough problem that has to be solved politically and that's gonna require money. So you've talked about what you would do to fix the current situation. What a, let's say it gets fixed. Okay, now what's the policy? What would you say, this is what we should do as a nation and as, in the current world? Well, I think that um, the narrow quotas we have for movement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States are completely unreasonable. Um, we have a North American economy that's pretty integrated and uh, the integra economic integration that occurs creates demand, legitimate demands for movement that we can't really accommodate through our own system. Uh, and um, uh, uh, so I would uh, uh, add immigration to the NAFTA agreement and make up a, a, there already is a TN visa, temporary NAFTA visa, that unlike the H visa can be renewed ad infinitum. Uh, the H visa is going to be renewed twice for three years. Um, so there is a basis there, but it needs to be bigger. Uh, and um, uh, so that's one thing. Uh, when, once you legalize the people that are already here, and if you handle the Central Americans as refugees, there's not gonna be much more undocumented migration from Latin America. Um, what, what ended, what ended migra illegal migration from, uh, from Mexico was the demographic transition in Mexico. In the 1960s and 1970, the total fertility rate in Mexico was 6.8 children per woman. Today, it's 2.2 replacement level. And it got to around 2.3 by the year 2000. So what happened was that in the 1980s and 90s, the people that we saw coming in were these large birth cohorts that were now entering the labor force where there were, there were not enough jobs and there were attractive opportunities in the United States. Uh, and the average age in Mexico in 1990 was about uh, 17 years old, 18 years old. Today, the average age in Mexico is 29. And, and like most demographic processes, migration is heavily age dependent. So migration rates for labor start to rise in the late teens, peak at around 21 or 22 years, then accelerate with increasing frequency and are very low after age 30. If you don't mig start migrating between the ages of say 16 and 30, you don't start migrating. And the average age of all Mexicans, all Mexicans is 29 now. And the average age of people at risk of migration, say 16 and above is about 47. Mexico has become an aging population. Labor force growth rates are decelerating. Wages have increased, education levels have increased. And let's face it, the US just isn't that great a place to be right now. Uh, and, and, but the demographics just are not there to sustain migration in the future. And the Western Hemisphere, Latin America as a region is at rate replacement or below replacement level fertility with a few exceptions. And um, the only failed state right now is Venezuela. And there are probably, uh, they could be up to about three million Venezuelans out of the country now. We have reaped the benefit of that because a lot of the 
Chavez, in his infinite wisdom, fired all the oil workers unions about 10, uh, employees about 10 years ago. So all these technical people from the oil extraction industry were thrown out of work because they, st they staged a strike against them for better conditions, so they fired them all. And they were snapped up by American oil companies. And, and people with technical degrees uh, came into the United States as, as immigrants under, under the job skills portions. Uh, and uh, and uh, the rest of them, the people that are migrating now are not coming mainly to the US, they're going to Brazil, to Colombia, to Peru, to Ecuador. Uh, and it's a real crisis there, but it hasn't really affected us yet. So we've got a fairly, with the exception of Venezuela, we've got a fairly tame situation here in the West, uh, Western Hemisphere. It's, and we're, Americans should consider themselves lucky compared to the Europeans. The Europeans are sitting on top of sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, with very rapid rates of population growth, high fertility rates, failing states right and left, internal uh, civil violence. It has the tremendous potential to produce mass outflows and heading northward. That just doesn't exist in the United States. So I think illegal migration in the United States in the future is going to be from visa overstayers, which are much more selected populations. It's, it's much more expensive to do that. And, um, and so uh, very fewer people do it. And the people that come uh, are the ones that can qualify for a visa. So they have to have income, skills, uh, 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 bank accounts, houses in the, their origin countries. Uh, and, um, and our problem there is that um, we don't have a very good worker program. So I think we have a, the beginnings of a good worker program. Uh, Trump and a lot of people are calling for a, a point system for skills. Um, and Canada has that, and Australia has that, but it actually doesn't work very well. Um, you get a bunch of people that acquire points because they got a lot of education. They might be doctors or lawyers, architects or engineers, uh, and then they come in, but they can't get jobs as doctors, lawyers, architects, or engineers because they can't. It takes a long time to meet the licensing requirements. And a lot of them ended up end up driving cabs in um, in Montreal or Toronto, and they they get kind of bitter. And this is, the, this is the source of some of the terrorist cells, people that get there and feel alienated and bitter in Canada. So it's not like Canada's a model. Uh, it's a model if you want to have well-educated taxi cab drivers, but um, uh, not a great model for actually incorporating skilled workers in the, into the economy. The United States, we give these H visas. So you get an H visa for three years and renew it for another three years. Now you're stuck, you can't move, you can't can't enter the labor force, You're, you work for the person who sponsored you to be there. Um, and then at the end of six years, after you learned to, to work in the US labor force, acquired skills, speak the language, uh, you're, you're booted out. There's very few places for you to go through the legal system. And I think what we need is a, is a much more generous way of uh, adjusting status from skilled H visa to permanent resident. A lot of people now are going back to China to support China in its boom and its, bo its economic boom uh, with human capital they acquired in the United States. Uh, and then we complain about Chinese going over back to China to, after we train them. Um, uh, so it's kind of crazy. So th that would be one thing to fix. Uh, and then I mean, there's lots of arguable things one could talk about in the immigration system. Um, chain migration happens. Um, the biggest source of chaining is the brother and sister. Um, uh, 
allowance. So if you're a permanent resident, if you're a citizen of the United States, you can bring in your parents and your minor children and spouse without numerical limitation. And if you're a US citizen, you can sponsor your brothers and sisters subject to numerical limitation. Now, I can understand bringing in your spouse and minor children if you bring in an immigrant. Um, parents, a lot of them come in to supervise kids while the parents are, are working in the US, so it's kind of a wash. Brothers and sisters, I don't see a huge justification for that. I mean, if you're a legal resident or a citizen, you can go back home and visit them and see your brother and sister. It's not a hardship. My brother lives in LA. I see him sometimes, sometimes I don't see him. Uh, it's the modern world. We don't live in the same place with our families. Uh, so I don't see a strong justification for that. And if you wanted to cut back on chaining, that would be the one, one preference category to eliminate without causing a lot of damage or human, human misery. Uh, uh, so in, in general, I think the biggest, biggest single problem is the 11 million people out of status. Second biggest problem is that we have a refugee problem and we treat it as a criminal problem. And the third, third um, uh, uh, issue is uh, what we do with our labor migrants. Uh, and we don't provide a pathway for them to continue into the labor force after we've already integrated them. I don't know who's got the mic. Yeah, I, um, I'm an immigrant, and I had the good fortune to come from Canada. So with white skin and coming from Canada, it hardly counts as immigration. But it does give me a huge sensitivity to this issue. And one of the things that uh, I've focused my research on is, uh, you made a comment earlier today about the immigrant flow would be much reduced because the conditions that created it back in the 60s uh, are not the same, but particularly true with Mexico with regard to demographics. Right. Not true, though, with the rest of Central America and Central Latin America. Central America is different, as I said. Yeah, and, and so my question is this, uh, and particularly given what's going on in Brazil, Peru, and a couple other places now that have not historically been hot spots, which look like they're going to become ones, um, what do you think the immigrant, two-part question, what do you think the immigration flow from destabilized, falling, or states that are radically hard on their citizens? So people who are truly immigrating or fleeing for safety, which is the caravan that, the, that Trump is referring to. And, and if that's a large number, if, it's that, if that's in the hundreds of thousands, which I think it is, or larger, what about the idea of taking 15 billion of the 18 billion in the current budget, budget for enforcement and putting together free enterprise zones and build them in Mexico? The Mexican government would love it because they have a falling demographic, so this would be a perfect situation for them. We provide them the capital, and you create entirely new cities in Mexico, which would be great for the Mexican economy, and give those people a place to go. Why not a creative solution like that, which also addresses the question of how to get corporations in at the feeding trough, because that's where we're going to have to make it work. What do you think of that as a radical solution? Well, the first point um, was the potential for outmigration from the Americas. I, I think it's the only place that it really is significant is Central America, and only from those four countries. Uh, and uh, it's it, even there, the potential is pretty limited. Uh, Salvador is small, and it's already below replacement level fertility. Honduras is also small, and its fertility rate's fallen and is approaching a replacement level. Guatemala is the one exception. It's bigger and it's got a higher fertility rate, but it's still not that big. And, uh, and it, 
the, the reason that migrants are going to come to the United States from these areas is because, first of all, we messed them up. And second of all, because, because we messed them up, they all have relatives in the United States. Uh, there's extensive family connections and personal connections. So when you flee, you flee to where you have family in a safe harbor. That's not true of Venezuela. They don't have millions of people living in the United States to connect with. And so the ones with skills came in under the skills provisions of US immigration law, and they're integrating fine. And the others, they don't, if they don't, have, they don't have skills or they don't have family connections to the United States, they just scatter through um, South America right now. Uh, uh, Panama and Costa Rica are doing fine economically. Peru is booming. Chile is doing fine. Um, Ecuador is doing reasonably well. Colombia's uh, violence is pretty much over, and their economy is doing well, but they're getting whacked by the immigration in, um, from uh, Venezuela. Uh, Brazil is an open question. They've got serious political and economic problems, and it looks like they're heading for a very right-wing government. I don't know what that will mean. But they don't have a very high rate of fertility, and they don't grow, they're not growing very fast, but they are a big population. Uh, so I just don't see a lot of demographic potential for mass migration from those parts of the world into the United States. Yeah, well, I agree, but they're not that big. I mean, you're not going to get a situation where you have the entire population's moving, but. Um, but there'll be significant movement for a while until the, the violence gets quiets down. And I think your idea about investment in Mexico is on, on, on the money. I've written long before Trump ever came into office that if we'd been smart in 1994 when we set up NAFTA, we would have followed the model of the European Union. Um, there was a big debate when they brought in the poor countries in the South, Spain, Portugal. Um, uh, will we give them labor mobility or will we not? And um, it wasn't just an economic union, it was envisioned of ultimately as a political union as well. And so they gave them free labor mo mobility and there was fear that there'd be a mass out-migration from Spain into Germany or, or England. And, um, and th that didn't occur. Uh, and one of the reasons it didn't occur was because uh, in, in addition to giving them free labor mobility, they provided structural, what are called structural adjustment funds. To, to Spain and Portugal, took money from the rich countries of the European Union so they could fix their infrastructure, come up to the standards of the rest of the European Union. Even though the wages were always still lower, a lot of the things that were driving migration stopped. Uh, and there was, there was a net flow of Spaniards back to Spain, not only a net flow of Spaniards back, but a huge flow of Germans into the Balearic Islands so that towns in Mallorca now have German mayors. Uh, and um, and, there, and Spain was pretty much integrated. And then when they let in the Eastern Bloc countries, they had the same debate, and uh, the, uh, there was no mass out-migration despite all this hysteria about Polish plumbers in France and, and in England. Uh, but the, 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 you're seeing this ongoing nativist reaction that's been spreading, uh, and it doesn't have anything to really do with the immigrants um, per se. There's, in U.S. history, and I think globally, there, these re nativist reactions occur periodically when two conditions prevail. One is rapid demographic change, mainly mean national origin change, racial and ethnic change, combined with 
a rise in economic inequality and insecurity. When those two things coincide, you get a nativist reaction. And that's what we're observing around the world today. Um, but I think that if the United States in 1994 had maybe not given free labor mobility, but increased the quotas for Mexico and Canada, and put a lot of, instead of building, instead of spending $3 billion a year in border enforcement, put that money into structural adjustment funds to improve Mexico's infrastructure, uh, uh, create uh, employment zones, maybe free enterprise zones uh, uh, in, in Mexico, uh, that would have, we, we could have avoided all this mess that we're in right now. The irony is the right wing uh, hates the immigrants, but the reason the immigrants are here is because they blocked them from going home. So I thank you so much for this very uh, expansive explanation of the whole immigration crisis. Um, the, the thing that I think is interesting in terms of how are you going to solve this, you can't, it, there's, it's not a logical uh, problem. It, and the, there's a there's a, needs to be a political change, but also it seems like um, it's, so much of it is driven by rhetorical need, you know, needs, and it's also, it also serves a psychological need to have a scapegoat. And so in a way, the, the, the best way to change it would be more in that, in, that, in that space, changing the way people think about um, these groups of people. Um, so that's my one comment there. The other thing is, for the people who are here, I'm very close to some who are undocumented, and it's, it's the strangest thing to be in this country and have no public persona. I mean, ha to have no uh, ability to interact with the world um, on paper. And I, I don't know, I, I, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about that and how that group can, you know, what's, what's the, speak about that. <laughs> well, on the first point, um, it's true that this is, this, we're in a nativist reactive period, but um, it's also true that substantial majorities are not opposed to the things that I'm proposing. I mean, the Dreamers get like 88, 85% support, even majority support among Republicans. And 60% uh, or more uh, routinely get uh, support uh, a pathway to legalization for those who are already here. Uh, it's our electoral system, electoral system that, um, that is dysfunctional. And we are saddled with a constitution written by slaveholders to allow minorities to block the possibility of social change. In particular, they were worried about the abolition of slavery. So they made it impossible for, uh, uh, for the slavery to be uh, uh, eliminated through constitutional means. And in the end, it didn't. It was a civil war that ended slavery. Uh, but we still have that system. And it's still being used uh, for racially repressive ways. Uh, a majority of the country voted for Hillary, not Trump. And it was only the Electoral College that put him in office. And let's remember that he only won the Electoral College by tens of thousands of votes in three states. And it could have easily gone the other way. And it was a terribly messy election with lots of bad things going on. So it's not like the potential is not there. It just wasn't realized uh, for a lot of different reasons. And it was very narrow. That said, um, I think the Democrats 
have really um, failed to make the counter case, present an alternative vision. And the media is completely irresponsible. So every time that Trump says build that wall, Pfizer reporter says, yet again, Trump offered, uh, proposes building a wall when the flow of migrants from Mexico has been negative for 10 years. It's a waste of taxpayer money. They, they say, you know, but Democrats allege that this is a waste of money. They don't say the fact. It's been negative for 10 years. Why are we building a wall? Um, and and, and uh, frankly, I, I miss Ted Kennedy. Um, I think things would have been a lot different if he didn't get a brain tumor and die in, in the first Obama administration. I think we would have had immigration reform because he knew how to work across the aisle and get things done. We would have had a, a better um, Obamacare system. Uh, and he was one politician of national stature that was willing to get up and defend immigrants as part of the American heritage and unashamed to do it. Uh, and who's doing that now on the Democratic side? And Hillary didn't do it in the campaign. And, and Obama, after promising it, twice in two campaigns, and Latinos coming out in force to put him over the Electoral College hump in two elections, he accelerated deportations to record levels. And so a lot of Latinos in 2016 sat on their hands because, you know, we, you know, we gave you the presidency and look what you did to us. So uh, Democrats are really at fault as well. <laughs> why, why do they do that? Obama, I, my wife's a social psychologist, and she's, she explained to me that I was going to be disappointed with Obama, and I didn't believe her, but she was right, um, that um, he's an inveterate um, um, uh, compromiser. You know, his whole life is compromised, being black and being white, bringing these opposite sides together. So you, if you read his book, that's what it's all about, you know, bringing. And he really um, drank his own Kool-Aid. And he believed that he could somehow unite these big divisions in America. And so I think his calculus on assuming office was, you know, he would go halfway. He would ramp up border enforcement. He would ramp up deportations. Then, of course, the reasonable Republicans would see this, and they would say, okay, you've come your way. We'll come with, up with a legalization program. And it took him a long time to realize this was never going to happen. That uh, well, on day one, they'd sworn a blood oath in the caucus to oppose everything that he does to make him a failed president. And compromising in that kind of environment, he should have, in the first two years, pushed for everything he possibly could, and he didn't. Oh, OK. So I mean, uh, first Speaking of all, I mind. think that's exactly what I would have said. I mean, I'm a big supporter of Barack Obama. And that would be my reply, that when he became president of the United States, he had an agreement with the Republicans that if he enforced existing rules that included deportation, that the Republicans would eventually come around toward legalization, toward amnesty. And ultimately, the Republicans, I don't think they ever intended to do that. No. And I think that part of the reason why they don't do that is they're worried about how those 11 million new voters will vote. And they are terrified that if they go through with the legalization, it will simply enrich the other party. That's why it hasn't happened, right? I mean, in essence, what the Republicans are doing, and I think the Republicans are far more responsible for this problem, is they are worried about the electoral politics, and they're doing it in a very cynical way. Yeah. They've uh, backed themselves into a terrible corner 
by being so anti-immigrant, yes, so nativist. Yes, they painted themselves into this the, the demographic future of the United States uh, is not old white people. That's right. The demographic future of the United States is uh, much more open and mixed uh, society. I don't like the backing away from the term majority minority. I mean, it makes it sound like Latinos are some uh, otherized group out there. In fact, like more, the majority of Latinos identify as white, so it's not exact. I think the, the lines are going to be changing. The categories we used to talk about ourselves are going to be changing. Uh, but that threatens the hell out of older white people. And that's the base of the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, uh, his only strategy now is to do everything they can to prevent the inevitable transition from occurring. Because it's built into the demography. Uh, and uh, every, the whole country is going to be like California at some point. Uh, yeah, and, I think that's right. And uh, so what they're doing is vote suppression, uh, trying to uh, prevent people from voting to the extent possible, trying to prevent minorities, poor, Latinos from voting. Uh, and the last thing they want to do is legalize 12 million, 11 million people who were not going to be Republican voters. Uh, and, and actually, California is the prime example of that. I mean, remember in 1992 and 1994, during Prop 187, this was a very red state. Pete Wilson was a very popular governor. He was a Republican. But one of the things that many Republicans in California never forgave Ronald Reagan for was the last amnesty, right? So in 1986, when Reagan adjusted between two to three million people, it simply helped the Democrats in California. If you're a Republican now and you see what happened to California, I mean, like, we don't have viable Republican candidates for governor or senator anymore in California. If you're a Republican in Alabama or in Florida, you are terrified of that same kind of thing. And that's why we don't have immigration. It's a big reason. Um, uh, so it's, it's all political, mobilizing the base and protecting uh, an electoral majority that's slipping away as we speak. Which is, by the way, pretty contemptible. I mean, but going back to your other question about the lives of people who are out of status, uh, I'm from UCSB, and next month, uh, Roberto Gonzalez is coming to our campus. He's one of the leading scholars of uh, people who are out of status. He has probably the largest database where he's collected ethnographic research about that population. And so, and he's coming to us from the Harvard Ed School. Yeah. And so I would ask you to look forward to that. Roberto first is coming to Princeton next weekend, next Thursday and Friday for a conference. He's a, on a tour. For, 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 for a conference organized by Alejandro Portes uh, on um, uh, children of immigrants in, in, in an age of exclusion. Uh, and uh, I, I'm presenting in that, and a number of our other colleagues like Roberto will be presenting in that. Uh, it's, 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 we're documenting the what's going on in the hopes that when the tide actually turns and, and the demography is pushing that way, that it'll be recorded and, and we can know what happened. Should I go? Um, so thank you so much, Professor Massey. I really liked what you said and I've been thinking a lot about this idea that race, right, is it's a real thing, but it's also there's this element that's socially constructed that you just talked about that that allows for people to categorize and to uh, vilify, which has been pushed forward by this narrative that you also spoke about about how minorities are 
a detriment to the American dream and how they're eroding our American way of life and, and our economy. So here I am, I'm in college, and I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by minorities and I get to interact with them on a daily basis and arguably we all do here being residents in Southern California. I also look at the political landscape as being completely stymied by par partisan politics and everything that you're talking about sounds awesome. It seems so far out of the realm of possibility though. Is it just gonna be about assimilation? Is that, is that what it is? Is that how we get to a place where we can accept these, these minorities because we live with them, I, we go to school with them, we understand their struggles to as best as we can? Is that what it's gonna take? Um, no, uh, the, the life table will take its inevitable course. Uh, older white people uh, won't survive that much longer. Uh, the baby boom is gonna die off. Uh, I'm 66, uh, you know, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and, um, and there's a famous paper in sociology called The Cohort as a Concept in Social Change, and in it a demographer points out that um, social change usually doesn't happen because there's a massive change in people's opinions and everybody does something different. Social change happens because younger people come into the population and they have different experiences and they, they adjust their attitudes and behaviors and thinking to what's now. And the older people who are socialized in a very different age, they die out. And over time, the population replaces itself and there's a steady process of social change. Occasionally, you do get these wholesale changes. The most recent is the shift in American opinion on gay marriage and treatment of gays, which cut across cohorts. But that was relatively uncommon. Uh, the more common thing is, is gradual social change driven by the demography of any population where young people come in experiencing new things, old people who experience a different world that no longer exists die out. And um, that's, that's where we're, we're headed. Um, I teach a course called Race and Public Policy in the Wilson School, which talks, uh, goes through the history of the United States from colonial times to the present and shows how race was made through public policy. And I tell my students, the sociological definition of race is, is the attachment of social meaning to inherited characteristics. It's completely socially constructed. Uh, so black skin is under genetic control, but the attachment of a meaning to black skin, that's social. And so, and race didn't exist as a category in human thought until the, the uh, modern period, around 1500, 1600, and it, be, it really begins with the slave trade and the, the uh, linking of slavery with one group of people in particular, people of African origin, uh, and, uh, and then colonialism and all the things that happened in the modern period. Uh, so it's, a, it's a totally a social construction, and the social construction is changing. So my daughter has a totally different view of the world than I would have had at her age. She's 26 now. I mean, I turned 18 in 1970, right? That, in that year, uh, for the first time in American history, the foreign-born percentage fell below 5%, reached 4.7% foreign-born, the lowest point ever in American history. And the average immigrant in 1970 was somebody's grandparent from the Russian Pale, from Poland, from Italy. Uh, uh, and there were very few young immigrants. And African Americans were 11% of the population. Asians were less than 1% of the population. Latinos total were only 4.7% of the population. And when I came out of college, uh, uh, well, when I turned 18 in 1970, entire 
segments of the labor market were reserved for white guys, white males. Law, medicine, business, professions, engineering, no white women, no women. And blacks were segregated and out of sight, not on TV. Uh, Latinos were regionally small and isolated, and Asians were vanish vanishingly tiny population. Today, Latinos are at 17% of the population, 18% of the population. Foreign born is about 13 or 14%, which is where it was historically. Uh, Asians are about 7% of the population. Blacks are now, because of immigration, blacks are now 12 or 13% of the population. And we got this larger and growing population of people that's all mixed up, uh, a, a mashup of, of different origins. And that's the future. Uh, and, um, and, but in psychology, there's a well-known phenomenon called loss aversion that Danny Kahneman discovered, uh, won the Nobel Prize for economics, even though he's a psychologist. And that is that people don't think logically. And we have lots of mental quirks. And one of the quirks is that we hate losing things that we have. And we feel a lot more pain at losing $100 than pleasure at gaining $100. And so we really get upset when we lose, we perceive losses for ourselves. And there's been a loss of white male status, clearly. And it's white men that are really mad. And they're the driving force behind what we're seeing now. But those people are aging. And I've seen a life table. I'm a demographer. And eventually, they pass out of the population. And they're replaced by these younger people that have a very different take on things. And so it will happen eventually. The big question is how much repression um, the, the Republicans can do now to prevent the transition from happening through vote suppression and other techniques and not doing legalization, and how much, how much, how long they can delay that, and how much damage they do to the country in between now and when the transition inevitably happens. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for a great talk and discussion. I want to um, challenge you uh, to stretch uh, a little further into the future and to ask how you see U.S. immigration policy and practice evolving over not just the next couple of years, but perhaps over the next decade, given that uh, the labor markets are likely to change substantially uh, with further uh, deployment of such things as artificial intelligence, uh, service jobs are likely to be declining, uh, globalism is likely to continue, and in spite of our current administration's uh, desires, uh, not likely to be uh, slowed down. The world's population is going to continue to grow, and, and developing countries are going to continue to advance. Where do you see U.S. immigration policy, let's say, 10 years from now or more? Well, I think um, all the developed world are facing a similar situation. Uh, internally, the driving force is going to be the aging of their populations. And um, uh, Europe is aging much faster than we are. Japan is already a negative population growth. It's declining. And um, they are one extreme of what, what you might do to deal with the situation. And what they're trying to do is um, they're actually trying to invent robots to do a lot of public services and take care of old people who are dependent. Um, they're going to, in 30 years, they're projected to have 60% of their population over 60. Uh, but that just doesn't seem like a viable economy to me. 
uh, you know, no matter how many robots you get. And we'll see, it's, so far it's not being terribly su successful. The Japanese growth has, has been stagnant for a decade. Uh, they're aging, their fertility rate's about 1.4 children per woman. Uh, they are actually shrinking and they're becoming smaller and smaller every year. Uh, uh, yeah, well, that's why they're doing robots, because they don't want, they have this genetic conception of what it means to be Japanese, which leads to some funny paradoxes. So they, since, since you have to be genetically Japanese to be real Japanese, if you need to import low-wage workers uh, under those circumstances, where do you get them? You get them from Brazil and Peru, where there are Japanese, Peruvian, and Brazilian populations that immigrated in the early 20th century, and uh, there are hundreds of thousands of them. And so Japan has a special visa for people of Japanese origin from Brazil and Peru that you get a three-year three uh, permit for work in Japan and with pretty much a lot of mobility, and you can renew it over and over again. And they think they're bringing in Japanese. And the irony is the Japanese Peruvians think, oh, I'm Japanese, I'll fit right in in Japan. And the Japanese think, oh, we're importing Japanese, they'll fit right in. And the Jap Peruvi Japanese Peruvians get there and they discover, and the Japanese discover, my God, they're Latinos. <laughs> they don't act like Japanese at all. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so it is, you're right about Japan, and I, I don't think it's going to be a very successful experiment. The rest of the world, um, I think it's, it, they're going to have to turn to immigration. And, um, and I think five years from now, uh, probably people, Americans will start talking, the public talk will be, gee, where are those Mexicans? We're gonna, we really could use more of those Mexicans, but they're not going to be coming. Uh, so I think we're going to have to bring in people to help sustain the retirement of the baby boom. And those demographic pressures are worse in Europe. And they've really got their heads in the sand uh, about, these, about these sorts of things. And, they're not, and they're not even, they don't even have a genetic conception. They've got a cultural conception of things. But it remains a mystery of how the politics of all that is going to work out. The other big driver, as you point out, is technological change and um, trade, globalization, which has been responsible for most of the transformation of the labor market, not immigrants. Immigrants are a tiny, tiny part of the economy. Uh, uh, and uh, so you got, on the one hand, maybe that'll be constricting work, or maybe it will be creating new kinds of work. We don't really know. In the, Every technological revolution, we predict the end of work, and every time they create more jobs than they, they eliminate. We don't, we don't know what's gonna happen now. I was just at a conference last week where this was the question. What is technological change gonna do in the future? Will it be like past booms when industrialization first came along? We had all this dystopian literature about, you know, that people were no longer gonna be needed. Machines were gonna do everything. We've got the same kind of dystopian literature now. If you've watched the Terminator series of Arnold, your former governor, uh, uh, and, but we really don't know. And it could go either way. I've heard very smart people, futurists, plugged in, doing uh, artificial intelligence research, give me both scenarios. And I, I don't know. Um, I have a PhD in sociology, uh, but that doesn't mean my crystal ball's any better than yours. Uh, but these are problems that w w the whole developed world is going to grapple with in the next decades. Uh, the aging of their populations and how they deal with that. And immigration is an easy and obvious way. 
if you do it right, or denial, and that creates its own problems with population shrinkage, and slack economic growth, really difficult trouble trying to support uh, in a social welfare system uh, an aging population. Or, uh, and then the other problem is technological change in trade and the globalized economy. And the, the, the inevitable changes in the distribution of economics and work that those things bring and how that plays out. And those are gonna be the big challenges in the future. Thank you.